Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, your faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Thanks for tuning in, people. This is like the 200 and something something episode of Not Real Art. So we're so grateful for your loyalty. Thanks for coming through. Of course, you like to tune in because we have amazing guests, and today is no exception. We have Sarah Griffin from Unwrapped the cutting edge gallery here in Los Angeles representing an amazing roster of artists of color, underrepresented artists, uh, emerging artists, but they're all brilliant, ingenious, beautiful, beautiful artists. Her and her partner, Trisha, have this incredible space here in LA. You got to come check it out. But before we get into this interview with Sarah, I want to thank you for tuning in. As always, I want to encourage you to go check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you on our website at notrealart.com. If you're an artist, please be sure to submit for our 2024 Artist Grant to, for the chance to win $2,000 and thousands more in marketing PR support. Six lucky artists will win $2,000 grants, 12000 total, with all kinds of great perks that come with it. So please, artists, come and submit your work for our 2024 grant, which remains open until January 1st. Okay, what else? Oh, we have new online gallery exhibitions, a lot of great work there on the website. Please check that out. Also, be sure to check out our new series, Remote, with our colleague and collaborator, the one and only Badir McCleary. He's doing some incredible work with the remote series. So check that out. It's a video series. Check it out, people. All right. Man, do we have a show for you today. A doctor's in the house. The doctor's in the house. Sarah Griffin has her PhD in English from Stanford, I believe, if not University of Pennsylvania. I know she's a real smarty pants. I love talking to her. And she's fantastic. I'm just so grateful that she came on, her and her partner, Trisha, both Ivy League educated, and they're doing incredible work helping artists here in LA. Their space is amazing. And Sarah was one of our panelists for our Smart Talks event that we did last year at the Helms Bakery Design Center in Culver City. So Sarah and I connected about a year ago, and she was generous and nice enough to come back onto the show to have a conversation about all the great work they're doing and all the amazing artists that they're supporting and representing their art rep. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation. You got to check these guys out, unrepped.com, U-N-R-E-P-D, unrepped.com, Trisha and Sarah doing amazing stuff. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with the one and only Sarah Griffin.
Sarah Griffin, welcome to Not Real Art. Thank you. My first question is, should I call you Dr. Griffin? Because <laughs> I think I think you, you know, maybe the only, maybe we've had one, no, we have had one other guest with a PhD in economics, but you have your PhD in English, no? That's right. Yeah. And the doctor title is not necessary. Sarah's good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I have to ask, that's a hell of an accomplishment. You know, congrats on that PhD. Thank you very much. I mean, I barely made it through grade school. So <laughs> the fact that you ascended to such heights, it's an inspiring story and you're classing up the joint. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for being here. <laughs> well, you know, so as you know, our listeners don't know, we have a little bit of a connection because you were generous enough to come and participate in our Smart Talks series last year where we were having a educational panels, informational panels for taking on hot topics for artists to come and listen and learn and network. And, and that was such a great event. Thank you for doing that. You just I oh, mean, that, was you so killed fun. It that day. <laughs> Thanks. That was a great event. I had a great time. Right. Uh, well, Trisha was there too, right? Like, so, and I think you brought the shorties, like the kids were there. Like it was like a family yeah. event. It was fantastic. Everyone was there. Yes, it was fun for all ages. I don't know, my kids, I don't know. Love that them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it was fun for all ages. But, you know, I want to go back because, I mean, I, you know, you and I chatted. I barely talked to Trisha. It was just, we chatted just a little bit. But, I mean, take us back. Like, how did you guys connect? So, we connected in 2019. Trisha owns a pretty well-known vintage furniture store here in L.A. called Pop-Up Home. I was just doing private art consulting and she started selling the work of one contemporary painter who I was interested in for one of my clients. And so she said, yeah, stop by. And I went to see the work. Trisha and I got to talking and it was one of those moments where everything is lining up, right? We were just so on the same page. We're talking about art. We're talking about representation. I'm telling her about all these great artists that I work with and, you know, that I wish that I could do more for. And she's telling me how the art that she started selling is doing really well. And she sort of also wanted to do more. And we decided to just do one show together. On that same day that we met, we were like, let's just do a show. Let's bring in the artists. You know, I know people, she has a large following on social media and just kind of see what happens. That was the initial conversation. We started planning the show. I brought the artists in. Everyone was excited about it. We had found a space for it. And then the pandemic hit. And the show was off. The space was closed. Everything was canceled. And we both kind of went our separate ways. And then Trisha called me maybe six months later and said, hey, I got this opportunity to open this huge space on Sycamore in West Hollywood would you want to bring the art in and see how it does? And I said, yeah, why not? I'm not doing anything. I'm sitting at home just like everyone else. Yeah, let's do it and see what happens. I called all the same artists back up and was just thrilled because they were so open to the idea with, I had nothing to show for myself other than an idea and they were all down. And so we started installing and before we were even open, we sold our first piece just from someone walking by. 
He saw what we were installing. He got super excited. He said, I need to bring my friend back, you know, tomorrow. And he and his friend both bought, we weren't even set up. We didn't even know how to take their money at that point. (laughs) And we thought, it looks like we're onto something. It looks like there's a need for this. Right on. Well, that's, yeah, of the tragedy that was 2020, this was a triumph that you guys were able to make lemonade out of those lemons. You know, it was, I think 2020 was such a weird time because as you said, it's, there's tragedy everywhere you turn. It also was an interesting time for artists because it gave them the space and the time to really create. And for those of us who work with artists, sort of the same thing where Trisha and I were able to just take an idea and go for it in a way that we may not have otherwise. And because we were able to stay open and the space was so large, it was 10,000 square feet at least, people were able to come, feel comfortable walking around. They're not too close to anyone else and just look at beautiful things, which at the time was really hard to do. There weren't too many places to do that. Everyone's sitting at home. Everyone's looking at their walls thinking, you know, I always wanted to put something there. I never had the time to do it. And all of a sudden it was the time to do it. So it really felt like weirdly this horrific year was actually the perfect time for this to happen. Right. And with 10,000 square feet, you can kind of social distance. Okay. You know, (laughs) that's exactly what it was. We said, you're going to feel totally comfortable here, right? No one is going to be in your space. Yeah. But 10,000 square feet, that's daunting. I mean, were you intimidated? Like when you walked in there and you were like, oh my God, I mean, I got to get to work. (laughs) When she first walked me through there, I said, okay, so (laughs) we've got our work cut out for us. But Again, I really did feel so strongly that I knew the right people whose work really needed to be seen. Right. And so part of it was just give yeah. me your biggest and your best, right? Let's right. just let's just do this. So that it well, actually it, it, ended up really fun. Yeah. I mean, it sounds and, like it was one of those times where you feel like, I think you said this too, it's sort of like kismet where it's like, it's like, no, 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 things are snapping together or right? In a way that's like, oh, okay, this is meant to be. That's what it felt like. And really, you know, aesthetically, Trisha and I are so aligned in a way that I haven't felt with anyone else. I don't know if she has either, where we don't even really have to talk that much about what the other one is doing and things just come together. So she was curating furniture. I was curating art. We're talking a little bit about the things that we're finding and bringing, but there's no overarching plan we just got everything in the space and put it up and it was perfect. Right? Well, it was but, exactly it, what we wanted it to be. Yeah. But by the way, not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, you know, with a PhD in English, what do you know? What do you know about <laughs> art? Like, That's let's go back to that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I will tell you, first of all, those of us with our PhDs in English like to think that we also know a lot about history, a lot about culture outside of literature. And so I was coming from a place where I really did feel like I deeply understand these pieces of art as cultural artifacts, as cultural objects. I understand where they're coming from. I understand what the references are, all of that. So I do feel like an I'm coming from a different angle. Right. And I remember when we had our first, this is jumping ahead, but when we had our first solo show, 
I wrote the statement for it. And this woman who was deep art world came and read the statement. I showed her around. And then at the end of it was when she found out that I had a PhD in English. And she said, oh, now I understand why the statement reads that way, right? <laughs> so it's definitely, you know, I'm, I, we're both outsiders, right? Neither of us came through the art world. And we think that that works to our benefit because we just have something a little bit different to say. Hallelujah. I mean, you know, we need more outsiders in the art world, right? We need more innovation. By the way, they knew that somebody else wrote that statement because it was comprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, like to, enough like with the international art speak. In there. Yes, yeah. a little bit of art speak, a little bit of academic jargon, and then make it something for everyone. Make it something that anyone who's just approaching art can read and feel like, I have an idea of what this show is, right? I have an idea of how to approach it. And that's the fun part. Yeah, I'm reminded of that uh, old statement, and I've heard it attributed to a few different people. I don't know actually who said it, but basically the statement kind of goes something like, um, anybody can make a simple idea complex, but it takes real genius to take a complex idea and make it simple. And, you know, that's what we need to do, right? Like, yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. That's what the best curators do. It's what the best writers do is absolutely distill something down to the essence. Yeah. That's how we share knowledge. Well, and also, you know, like, let's, I'm sorry, I'm going to get on a soapbox, but it's like, let's stop taking (laughs) ourselves. We love what we do and we're serious about what we do and what we do is important work, not just for the artists we serve, but for the world in terms of helping the, the world access culture, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, like, let's also have a sense of humor and enjoy the ride a bit and stop taking ourselves so damn seriously. You know, there's enough precious people in our world. We need some folks who are going to, you know, maybe be a little bit less serious and have a little fun along the way, which is also part of the reason why, for example, this podcast is called Not Real Art. I mean, it is absolutely an intentional name that nine out of 10 artists get the joke immediately. And serious collectors, serious gallerists, they never get the joke. (laughs) They they just don't get it. That's great. Yes, I mean, I think it's so important. I think Trisha and I say all the time, there's a reason why everyone gets into art in the first place, and we don't want to forget that reason, right? And it's that it's fun. It's that it's beautiful. It's that it makes us feel a certain way. It's that when we have something in our home that we live with, it literally changes how this space feels. And we want people to lean into that. We have people come in all the time who say, I don't know anything about art, but, right? And I always say, you don't have to know anything other than what you personally think about this piece, right? And it doesn't matter what any gallerist or any other artist or anyone thinks about it. What matters is, do you want to live with that? Do you want that piece in your house? And because if it makes you feel the way that you want to feel, that's the piece for you. You don't have to know more than that. It's not about knowing, it's about feeling. And that's what we try to create in the showroom is a place that feels good. We want people to walk in and feel amazing. I think that's the big difference between us and a lot of white box galleries where I think particularly as people of color, we walk in and feel like, I don't necessarily belong here. You know, 
Are these people thinking I should even be here? Can I even afford anything that's on the walls? And the trick of it is we often can. It's just made to feel uncomfortable. And so we really try to do the opposite. (laughs) 100%. I love that line. I think that was a quote. You should quote yourself uh, that you said, it's not what you think, it's how you feel. And I mean, that's, you know, it reminds me, I had a conversation a while back with somebody and I was saying, you know, this whole argument or this whole notion that art is an economic asset that should be collected for some kind of economic appreciation. I'm like, for starters, art is a horrible investment. Like number one, (laughs) okay? Like, let's just start with that, okay? Number two, the people that are talking like that are millionaires and billionaires who are trying to avoid paying taxes and are locking these things up in free storage or whatever. And, you know, and and that's a different game. I mean, God bless those people, whatever, that's fine. But where we live in terms of trying to work with, you know, emerging artists or emerging, you know, collectors or whatever. I mean, my whole point is like, no, 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 no. Art isn't an economic asset. Art is soul food. Like you need, like you want to buy stuff that makes you feel good, that you want to look at every day. And by the way, that's all artists want from you too. Like artists just want you to buy their work, take it home and enjoy it every day. That's right. That's right. Artists are so excited every time the right person finds the piece of art that speaks to them. And I do feel like that happens, right? It's somehow the right pieces always find their right collectors. That's what we want. That's what I want. That's what the artist wants. That's it's the collector wants. That's what we all want, right? And yeah, you're right that our collectors are not the people who are going to go put it into storage. Our collectors are living with their art. Many of our collectors are the first people in their family to collect art. So it's not something that they've been told is a financial tool, right? It's something that as they progress in their careers, as they have a little bit of, you know, extra cash on hand to do something special for themselves, they figure out this is something that I can do that feels really good, right? And that makes me want to bring people into my home, makes me want to host, you know, the whole thing makes the house feel like it's mine. So I love that. That's my favorite thing is helping people find that piece that is special to them. And when people ask me, you know, I of course get people asking me, well, is this going to appreciate? Am I going to make money on this? And I always say there's no way for me to make that kind of a promise, right? I can always, I can tell you who I think is amazing, but it doesn't mean that that person's going to make you a lot of money. I can't, that's not why you should buy it from me, right? From me, it's buy it because you love it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, it is such a fascinating thing. I mean, because, you know, there's so much misconception out there and, uh, you know, this idea of like the idea of like affordability, right? It's like the way the galleries, the way the art is, you know, framed, so to speak, in these white cube galleries, it's sort of positioned as a luxury item, right? So suddenly it's like luxury item, boo, that's expensive. Can I afford that? And the reality is, There is so much amazing, affordable art out there. And just, you know, empowering people to to have a little bit of confidence, you know, in themselves, even, you know, it's like you were talking about, you know, people saying, well, what should I think or whatever? And it's like, I've told people, it's like, listen, as far as I'm concerned, you're the art expert. I'm like, what's your favorite color? Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, let's let's oh, red. Okay, let's go over here to the red section. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I do think, in terms of being a luxury item, you're right that there's a lot of affordable art. I feel like at 
most price points, though, when it comes to art, it feels like a stretch in the way that maybe a sofa doesn't because the idea is I need a sofa, right? I have to have somewhere to sit. I don't have to hang anything on my wall or I don't have to have a sculpture that I place here. My feeling is once you take that leap and you have that thing, you realize you do need to have that, right? It's part of your home in a different way than if you just go buy an open edition print somewhere. And so, yes, it's going to cost more money than that open edition print, but it's also going to give you something that that print doesn't. And for me, as you said, that's the soul of it. That's your life, right? That's everything. So for me, it is a necessity. Well, and then there's also an interesting conversation to have around the fact that, well, number one, I don't think people, I don't, personally, I don't trust people with empty walls. I think empty blank walls equal empty blank souls. <laughs> we, 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 need, we need the art, right? But that being said, it's like, you know, each individual deserves an individual space, right? Yeah. And if you're buying decor, which is a $6 billion category, wall decor, home decor, by some estimates, maybe it's even more than $6 billion now. But, you know, okay, fine. If the rest of us are supposed to go buy our so-called art at, you know, Target or whatever the hell, you know, that is, you know, mass produced. The environmental impact of that, for example, you yeah. know, is interesting. It's mass produced. It's not at all unique. You know, and so spoil yourself a little bit, you know, go um, out there, find cool. unique objects that reflect your personality, reflect your character, make you feel good, create that vibe that you deserve, you know? Yeah. It's like the difference between buying fast fashion and going to a boutique. You're going to spend a little more money at this local boutique, but you're going to be in a relationship then with the artist who made it, you know, yeah. you're going to have something that's just for you. That's super special. That makes you feel a certain way when you put it on. And honestly, I should also say, because I use the sofa example that this does also exist in the furniture world. So everything that Trisha sells, they're one of a kind designer, incredible, beautiful pieces that yes, have the same function as a sofa that you could get at Target or wherever. Right, right, right. And by the way, I love Target. I'm not throwing shade on Target. I love Target. <laughs> right. Yeah. I will take a Target shopping spray. But for certain things, for yeah. certain things. And I yeah. do, yeah, I, I do feel like there is value in giving yourself something that's a little bit special and a little more you. Well, but it's a fascinating conversation because I mean, what is, you know, like I'm Gen X, so 53 and, you know, I grew up, you know, working class Midwestern. We, you and I have a Chicago connection, by the way, because you're from Chicago, right? I am. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So we got to talk about that. But anyway, okay. the, 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 the point is, is that, you know, growing up working class, middle class, you know, kid in the Midwest suburbs of Chicago, you know, back in those days, like, you know, my family, you know, we were supposed to buy our art at the so-called uh, art gallery in the mall, you know, with the oil paintings, you know, that were replicated or whatever. And there were companies that produced that. I mean, actually, one of here's a cool story. So one of our grant winners, Albert Cleophus, who you should maybe know, he's an incredible human. And he's getting up in years. He's like 80 now. Well, maybe he's mid-70s. But anyway, he's getting up in years. But 
he and I met him through kind of a, a mutual friend and he was on the podcast. And part of his story was that he back in the day in the 60s or whatever here in L.A. worked for one of these art manufacturers where they would employ professional artists to paint these paintings and they would have an assembly line, you know, and he said that they would, you know, the artists would line up and they would each go down and paint that stroke or paint that thing. And then it was just an assembly line and they would just do that. Well, they all painted under aliases, right? Well, it turned out that his alias, I remembered because my mom had one of his paintings oh, funny. <laughs> in our house, right? So the point is, is that, you know, there's a whole segment of the population that feels like they're relegated to buying art, you know, in some other venue, in some other place. And, you know, and the reality is that you and I both know that there is so much amazing affordable art out there that most people can afford. They just need to know how to access it and how to get to it and have confidence in that. And, and that's, you know, that's why I, I get excited about this issue because I feel like that's our role, right? Is evangelical art missionaries spreading this news that no guys, you know, you can too. Yes, you can too. We have a special section on our website, art under $500, right? right? There is art at any price point. Yeah. You just need to know where to find it. And those art factories still exist. My sister literally called me today and she was like, have you gone on Etsy? Because there are these, they call them original art, but they're clearly coming from an art factory. <laughs> so I haven't actually seen them, but she was like, I can't, she goes, I know that there are actual artists on Etsy, but they're buried under this art factory stuff. And it's actually hard to find them. Yeah. So yeah, she was Asking the question, where else do I go, you know, to find something that's real? And there are places. Absolutely. Well, and then, you know, I don't know if you've, there's this talk about art factories. You know, it's interesting, this trend, because then you have like this company, Andy Blank. I don't know if you know these guys. Have you heard of these guys? No. Yeah, check them out because they're really bringing a level of modernity and polish and sex appeal, you know, to what they're calling art, what maybe some would call decor, but you know, it's just, it's all happening, right? Like they're, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's mm -hmm. cool. I mean, you know, well, it doesn't always have to be at a one-on-one -on -one or whatever, but right. you know, it's right. all about what makes you feel good. But yeah, it's, you know, people just need to know how. That's right. Yeah. And I'm all for a limited edition print. hundred percent. Right? Yeah. Right. I think those are, I think those are great. We've done a couple solo shows this year and we've had prints at both of those that I feel like are an amazing option at a smaller size because not everyone can put a wall sized piece of art up and, you know, and then at a more budget friendly price. Right, right. Well, I tell you what, we should run for office because uh, I think we could solve all the all the world's problems. Uh, I think we get votes. Yeah. <laughs> It's a powerful ticket. Okay, so let's talk about Chicago. So let me just give you a little context. I'll go first. So I was born, ironically, in the same hospital as Michael Jackson in Gary, Indiana. And I grew up in Northwest Indiana, about 40 miles outside of Chicago. I graduated from Columbia College in Chicago and lived downtown for years and years and years until I moved to L.A. in 01. That's my quick story. What's your Chicago story? So I was born at Evanston Hospital, but I was raised in Arlington Heights. Okay. And I love Chicago. It holds a place in my heart forever. 
it was too cold for me. So I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got out of there at 18 as soon as I went to college. I moved back after college. Then I went to grad school. I moved back after grad school because Chicago is always calling to me. I lived in the city both of those times and then moved out to L.A. in 2013, I believe. Yeah, Yeah, once you get a taste of California, because, I mean, you went to Stanford, right? So, like, once you get... Once you get that taste, it's hard to go back. It's hard. It's hard. I'm a warm weather person. So yeah, the the you know, in LA the seventy five all year. I can't really excuse myself <laughs> to do that. Not yet at least. <laughs> well, by the way, we we sort of paid our dues. I mean, you know, you live the majority of your life in the Midwest with the winters and the humidity and whatnot. You know, it's like, okay, you know, I, I got my stripes. Right. Well, and my family is still there. So we go back often We do. We have white Christmases and, you know, we go back multiple times a year. So I feel like I'm still getting my little taste, but then I leave the negative 25 wind chill and I come back here and it's still 65 and good. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. So you guys have done such a fabulous job. And by the way, I say, I say you guys, I mean, I'm talking about unrepped your organization. We haven't I will have mentioned it in the intro, but we talked about you and Trisha. So you've done such a great job of telling your story, your, you know, in terms of your marketing and your PR. You know, it, it's a compelling story for sure. It's a timely story for sure. The proof is in the pudding. I mean, my God, between the furniture and the artwork and the magic that you and Trisha are creating together, it, it speaks for itself. But running a business is stressful. Running a business is challenging. I don't, you know, have to tell you, you know, so talk a little bit about some of the challenges you face and some of the surprises, you know, good and bad, right, that you're dealing with these days. Sure. Yeah. I mean, starting on rep for me was really a crash course in running a business because when we started it, I didn't even know if it would be a business. I didn't know if this was just going to be a one-time thing and then we're done, but we always say that it feels like we kicked a ball down a hill and spent the first two years just running to try to catch up with it. And for me, that meant learning 15 years worth of running a business in the course of 18 months. You know, I was at home with my kids during the whole first half of the pandemic and then transitioned to let me do this part time once we started. And then all of a sudden realizing this needs to be a full-time gig and the growing pains on that were crazy, both personally and professionally. So we've just learned a ton of lessons in giving yourself grace, continuing to push forward, believing in things that you can't see. I think some of our biggest lessons have come out of the toughest times that we've had. So for instance, when we had to leave Sycamore, we only had a month's notice. And if you know anything about commercial real estate, that's not enough time to find a new place and sign the lease and get everything done and all of that. And we really felt like, how are we going to do this, right? Where are we going to put our businesses? But we just said, we're just going to do it, right? We're just going to go out there and we're going to see what comes. We're going to open ourselves to whatever, you know, the possibilities are. And we ended up getting connected with Zach Lazary, who at the time we didn't know was working on this project to make this block a gallery center. But he showed us these buildings that were just in their most basic form. And we fell in love with the architecture of them. 
And it's turned out to be the biggest blessing, the biggest gift we possibly could have gotten. And has really, I mean, it's really, it's been game changing for us. And so that's been the most surprising thing is that whenever we feel like there's a block, it's really just a signal that we're about to take it to the next level. It's the diamonds are made under pressure, right? Like that's the thing, right? But trusting in what you can't see as well, right? Just trusting Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you have integrity and you have a pure heart and you're working hard and you're, you know, mighty forces come to your aid, you know, on some level, right? And if you're being really true to yourself, I think starting this, there were so many people with so many opinions about the ways that things need to be done in order to have a gallery, right? You have to do A, B, and C, and this has to work this way. And both Trisha and I are not rule followers in any kind of a way. And so we haven't done any of those things that people told us that we needed to do. And what we found is that we're the most successful when we just do what feels right to us and when we don't try to follow other people's rules, right? That's when it gets awkward and weird. But as long as we're doing what feels great, what we like, what we're excited about. That's how we stay on the right path. Yeah. Well, and by the way, like that's absolutely the best and in, in kind of the only way, because, you know, we all know that really at its core, when it comes to art, there are no rules. There are no rules when it comes to art. And I mean, there's lots of people that wants to argue that point and tell you differently, but I'm just saying based on my experience, what I believe there's no rules. So how do you apply that? to the art business, you know, and I've been saying for a long time, it's ironic, right, that essentially there's been zero innovation in the art marketing, art retailing, art distribution, you know, art sales, like it's been the one model, white cube gallery model that doesn't serve 99.9% of artists. So where's the innovation? And and that's what you're talking, I think that's what you're talking about, which is like, you guys are saying, no, no, we're going to innovate, we're going to break the rules, we're going to make up our own rules, we're going to do it our way. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So in a number of ways, the first one is obviously that it's not a white box gallery, that we're putting contemporary art together with this incredible postmodern furniture in a way that we think is so beautiful and we think draws people in and makes them able to see how they might live with the art. So that was the number one thing. Number two is that we sell it on a rolling basis. We're not doing shows all the time or we weren't doing shows all the time. Instead, we'd have artists give us a small collection, right, so that collectors can get a sense for what does the breadth of this artist's work look like, but it's not a solo show concept. And then we're rolling them in all the time. And it really has given us a way to almost lab out the artists. We can see what works. We can see what doesn't work. And so when we did end up doing more of a traditional solo show, our first one was with Corey Pemberton. And the only reason that we did that show was because we couldn't keep his work in the showroom long enough to feel like we were doing it justice because it would just sell. The second it got on the wall, it was gone. And we really felt like these pieces are incredible and we want them to be seen. So let's do a more traditional model just to give them the time to be seen. But I think it's the furniture, it's music. We always have music going and we play what we love. And then it's keeping it fresh, keeping it moving, keeping people coming in all the time. There's always something new. If you come one week and then you come the next week, you're going to see something different than you saw. So that people stay excited about 
art and then not making it stuffy. I guess that's the last piece of it is really intentionally bringing people in, making it feel inclusive and treating everyone who walks in their doors like they're someone who might want to own a piece of art. Right, right. Yeah, warm and cozy is a great strategy. You know what I mean? Like my word's not yours, but like the vibe that you're creating, keeping it fresh, keeping it welcoming, keeping it warm, keeping it, you know, some level cozy, like people want to be, you know, they, they want to come back. They want to stay. And, you know, I, I love that. Yeah, And they do. I mean, we have so many people who come and find us and love it so much that they'll then just come to hang out. Yeah. You know, on a random, right? We just kind of want to be here, right? We want to, we want to chat. Right, it's like right. we're here right now. We want to shoot the shit. Can I say shit? We want to. Shoot yeah, you the, can you know, say shit. That's the idea. That's the change, I guess, from what we had seen in the art world before. Right. Okay. So let's do this because you know, you and I could you know talk forever about all the great stuff that you and Trisha are doing in the story and the journey. I mean, there's so much unpacked. But really, the reason we're here, the reason you're in the game, the reason you know we're in the game here is to celebrate and elevate the artists we love, right? So enough about us. Let's talk about artists. Let's talk about the artists that you love. You guys represent some amazing artists. And I don't want to put you on the spot too much because I, I know it's like, oh, like, don't mention them all. Like, I don't want to like offend anybody if I forget somebody because you got a long list. But, you know, artists who are listening, we love you all. We may not mention you all. Not because we don't love you. It's just because we got limited time. And I'm, put, and I'm putting Sarah on the spot. But let's celebrate and honor some artists that you guys love and are passionate about are working with these days because it's all about them. We want to shout out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we haven't mentioned yet that this year we've been doing a residency at the Grand LA downtown. Yes. yes. Yeah. That residency is more of a white box idea. And we have done two solo shows so far this year. We have two more to go. So our next show there opens September 9th and that's Valencia Jean Patelli who is a New York-based artist, the only New York artist of the four, who's doing this incredibly beautiful mixed-media abstract show that thinks about how Yoruba cosmology gets used throughout the diaspora, particularly by queer people of color, in creating community, in creating self outside of maybe traditional boundaries or conventions. And Valencia's using textile sculptures, work on masonite, work on wood panel, sound that they created that's going to be in multiple points in the space. It's going to be just a truly beautiful spiritual experience. So I'm really, really excited about that. It's a different feel than anything we've done before. So that's super, super exciting. And then our fourth and final show at the Grand Space is going to be Mancho 1929, who is a Puerto Rican artist born in New York, but now living here in LA. And what's funny is his show really relates to Valencia's from a completely different lens, which is that he's thinking about Latinx communities here in the States and how a lot of West African religion is sort of infused through Christianity in these really interesting ways in Latinx communities. And he's using the Botanica as the site 
where we find that happening and thinking about the botanica as a healing space. So they're tied together in this way that I love, but they're going to be completely, completely different. So I'm excited about both of their work. I have so many other artists. (laughs) (laughs) We just brought in a printmaker, Karen J. Revis, whose work is so beautiful and important. I literally just installed her work last week and I'm, I'm super excited about her. We also have a painter, Leonard Maiden, who lives in Senatobia, Mississippi, who does these haunting portraits that every time we put them online, they break the internet. Just immediately internet is broken because they have some magic to them that just really speaks to people. So we have, I brought two of those in last week and I have two more. Well, there were four, but two sold, but two more that are coming from the framer that I just picked up today. So those will be in the showroom very soon. Oh man. Yeah. And those are just, I think three uh, or four of your. Two artists that we had it's at the like, grand who did solo shows, Corey Pemberton and Edwin Marcelin have both taken off. They've both been with us since we opened in 2020 and both of them were sort of the same thing that I'm talking about with Leonard, just immediately spoke to people and they're two of our best-selling artists. Edwin does abstract work. Corey does mostly figurative. Corey does mixed media. Edwin's a painter. Both of them are incredible. Next year, we're going to do a show with Kira Morgan, who's also been with us since 2020. Um, there are so many people to name. <laughs> uh, there is. There is. Absolutely. Well, so we discover artists all kinds of ways now, right? Like, I mean, you know, shout out Instagram, right? Like, you know, how, and of course, word of mouth and referrals. I mean, how have you built your stable of artists? I mean, you know, has it been sort of a, you know, a little bit on Instagram, a little bit of word of mouth? I mean, how do people find you? How do artists find you? How do you find artists? Yeah, it's the combination of places. So, Corey, I found at an art fair. He had just moved to LA and was doing an art fair. I saw him there and knew immediately that that people would respond to his work. I also first saw Mancho. I saw Mancho first at the other art fair. Word of mouth, definitely. You know, there are communities of artists. They're friends with each other. They'll, you know, either one will say to me, you should check out so-and-so, or they'll talk to each other and say, you should contact Sarah. That's happened a couple of times. Deep Instagram scrolling. That's how I found my <laughs> tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Late night. I was deep, yeah. deep on, on my. <laughs> the rabbit holes uh, are real. Yeah. Yes, yes. And then we have a submissions email, submissions at unwrap.com, where we'll take. And then, yeah, it can really, I mean, there are so many places. It really can be anywhere. And it's, it's one of those things I get asked all the time how do we know when we see one that's, that's one that we want. And that's the harder part to put my finger on because that's where it is a feeling. It's something that grabs you and it's not always easy to say what it is, right? Because it could be different things. It's not right. as simple as, oh, this has great technique. You know, it's just not that. No, no, but in general, I mean, I can't speak for you, but from my own experience, like it for me, it does start with uh, intuitive spark, like like something It just, it's like, it speaks to me. Like, I don't know why, maybe, right? But it's like, there's, I call it a wow factor. There's like, like, there's something in me that goes, wow. 
you know, like, and then I, you know, think about it from there. But it, I mean, like, that's the thing, right? This idea that there's some sort of objective rule for what is or isn't good art is like, that's part of the bullshit, right? I mean, right. The, the reality right. is it's, the art world is filled with subjectivity. <laughs> you know? it's right. Like, right. That's right. Yes, that's exactly right. And I do feel like without getting too woo woo with it, people can feel the energy that an artist puts totally. into a work, right? Yep. And yep. so it's, sometimes it's just as simple as that. We have one artist, Sachiko Bradley, who I laugh with sometimes because the way that her work sells is all of a sudden six pieces will sell at one time. So it's this like interest, like she's the only one really that I know where it sells that way. And then it'll be a while where like, you know, it'll be one piece here and then it'll be like a huge, right? They sell all at one time. And I'll always say, you know, are you like doing something? <laughs> to, like, like a ceremony, a ritual of some kind, right? Some voodoo right, right. that you do. <laughs> and she'll say, like, I was just like, you know, putting my energy on, right? Like just thinking about, you know, whatever it is. And people really do respond to it. So I don't know how to quantify that, but it works that way. Yeah. It's such a fascinating dynamic, right? Or, or just experience. And, and that's, you know, if there's anything that I try to encourage people is to trust their instincts. You know, it's like, you know, when it comes, not, not just, you know, when it comes to selling art or dealing art or whatever, but, but in terms of, you know, just regular people, so-called regular people out there in the world, you know, see something you like that speaks to you, take it home, just take it home. You know, I was really discouraged. NPR recently had a thing. I was scrolling on my phone in the news, and there was this article that caught my attention. The title was something like, How to Look at Art, like something like that. And it might even have been How to Look Art in a Museum. But anyway, the so I click on it, and it's a, kind of one of those audio pseudo podcast kind of stories that NPR produced. So it was, you know, obviously very well done and highly professional and world-class in that way from a production standpoint, a writing standpoint. But as I'm listening to this, and it was only like 10 minutes or something, but it was, you know, it was the journalist and then there was a, a museum director and then a curator and all these stakeholders. And essentially the whole piece was talking about, you know, how people should experience a museum and be in a museum and look at art and understand art. And long story short, part of the reason I was so discouraged was that the, the actual it was so rudimentary. On one hand, it was very rudimentary. And on the other hand, it was also the same old shit, you know, mm -hmm. but right. what got yeah. to me was that, you know, NPR was publishing this story because they felt like there were enough people out there who were so incapable or intimidated or just insecure about going into a museum and just walking around and, you know, and looking around and thinking for themselves. And I thought, my God, it's even worse than I thought, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, we, got, we got a lot of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. We do. We do. Well, because people have been told that there's a right way to do it. I yeah. think that's what's at the heart of it is that, Somewhere along the line, people are told there's a way to make real art, right? There's a way to make good art. There's a way to look at art. There's a way to understand art. You know, this is what you're supposed to feel about this artist because this is a good artist. And this is how you're supposed to feel. All that is bullshit. 
Yeah. None of, yeah. That, none of yeah. that is real. That right. is really not real. No, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> the bullshit is real, but the value is less, right. less real. Yeah. Right. Yes. And I think, I mean, that's a huge thing that Unwrapped has sort of set out to do, which is to bring artists who aren't being valued onto a platform where all of a sudden people can see their value. And this has been, you know, I had this conversation with Corey when he was first starting out before we even installed any of his paintings and we were talking about pricing and he was really afraid to, I shouldn't say afraid, but like afraid of putting a price on it that I felt was more than reasonable because the fear is that people aren't going to pay that. Right. And I think particularly for artists of color who haven't been looked for for a long time, right? Where no one is checking for you. You haven't gotten any signals that your work is valuable. It's hard to believe that somebody would pay for you. Yep. And I said to him, there is no difference between this painting and a $50,000 painting other than the fact that the right people don't know about this painting yet. Right. But, and that's literally all it is. And then, you know, as we sort of went over pricing for his most recent show, he said something that was beautiful and it was, I can't quote him exactly, but it was something like when you said that I didn't believe you. And now I see what you mean. Right. And all that took was just getting the work as it was right. Because it was already absolutely fantastic. It was just getting it in front of the right people. And so for someone to say, oh, you know, nobody's blessed that. So therefore it's not good art is literally ridiculous. And the best thing you can do is go find those people that no one's noticed yet. Right. And oh, my God. <laughs> right. Like, go, go find that guy on Instagram and throw him a couple hundred bucks and get a masterpiece. Get something that in your house is going to look like an actual masterpiece, because when he does get found, Well, by the way, I just have, you know, there's no better example of what you're talking about than the story of Herbert and Dorothy Vogel, Mm -hmm. right? And they became gazillionaires. I mean, she was a librarian. He was a postal worker. Or maybe I have that. No, she was a librarian. I think he was a postal worker, right? They went around New York. Their thing was art. And they just start buying all this art from unknown artists that they loved. And next thing you know... Their collections were unbelievable. I tell I tell everybody to watch that documentary because it's like if they can do it, we all can do it. Yeah, because there's good art everywhere. There are so many incredible artists. I just I find them all the time. (laughs) Well, by the way, I'm gonna put you on the spot because you haven't mentioned a Chicago artist. So right now. You got it. Yeah. Come on. You got one Chicago artist on that roster, right? I on my list. That's true. That's true. I know. I'm very LA heavy. I know, LA. right? We all are. We all are. Yeah. yeah. You know, when he, I first I moved, yeah. true story. When I first moved to LA in 01, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, we go to this. I didn't know anybody except her and her friends, right? So mm-hmm. I just moved here. And we go to this dinner, whatever, and my wife works in entertainment. And so, you know, I'm there with some other entertainment people. And I'm chatting, you know, the two guys sitting next to me. 
very affable, funny, you know, guys, but also very LA, very Hollywood. And so they say, oh, well, you're new. You just moved here. I'm like, yeah, just moved to LA. Like, Where are you from? I said, oh, Chicago. And they go, oh, the flyover city. I never heard that phrase before, right? This was 2001. I never heard that. I said, excuse me? They said, oh, it's the flyover. So you fly over Chicago to get from LA to New York and back. And without right. st- without hesitation, I said, keep flying over. Yeah, Just exactly. keep flying over. <laughs> Please keep flying Just over. Just keep flying yeah. over. We do not, yeah. you know, but yes. That uh, makes sense. That's right. But here we are in La La Land. And, you know, and there are so many amazing artists here. There are amazing artists everywhere. We got to focus and we got to, you know, for no other reason, just to, you know, be effective. We got to focus and, you know, because that's the other, that's the trick, right? When you have a big roster of artists, like you don't want anybody to fall through the cracks. I mean, there's a lot of pressure, right? Yes. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of just relationship management. I spend a ton of my time just making sure that everybody feels seen and tended to and with a huge roster, that's hard to do. Yeah, we're part therapists too. You know, it's like we don't get to. <laughs> <laughs> that's, it. that's exactly right. Yeah. That's, that's half the job. Yeah, I'm going to tease you a little bit. Because, you know, the old saying, the emperor has no clothes. My friend, the wall behind you is blank. Like we need like we need to get some. Oh, where is your art? So this I'm in actually my husband's office right now. And we moved into this house a year ago. And the plan is that this wall is going to be all bookshelves. Because right now, all of my books are in storage in our garage, which is not okay with me because I believe we have to live with books just as much as we need to live with art. A hundred percent. But we needed to finish the upstairs right. first. It's a process. I yes, get it. It's a process. It's funny though, because I'm never down here and he has said to me, I need to just put something on my wall in the meantime. In the meantime. And I'm kind of like, eh, I'm never in there. I don't think about it. Right? Like, <laughs> I don't care. And now that we've been doing this, I'm looking at my background like, oh, yeah, I just I couldn't let the opportunity go. I had to tease you about That's that. Fair. Yeah. So, you know, we're too busy helping other people with their art. So I that, literally uh, was going to just tack a nail on the wall and hang something just for Can I, I mean, literally, just so you know, I'm not lying. I just ran out of time. <laughs> I was going to just nail something up really quickly, but. I highly recommend your kids' drawings attacked yes. uh, on the back. Yes. I think that nothing's a, there's no higher art form than kids' drawings. That's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> I love my kids' work. Actually, I was just talking to my daughter because we're going to do a little salon wall of her work in her room. Oh, nice. How old's your daughter now? She's eight, and my son's eleven. Nice. My daughter is ten, going to be eleven, and my son is six. We should have a play date. 
Yeah, we should. That's very close. That's perfect. Yeah, I've actually thought about that, like how, and I'm going to, we're actually in the process of moving next week, which I am not looking forward to, but I'm excited. I've been wanting for a long time. I've been wanting to do like family picnics, but the families are all artists and art, you know, lovers, collectors or dealers, but primarily artists with kids. You know. I love an art family picnic. That's right? so wonderful. Yes. We got to yes. do that. We got to do that. Yes. My kids would love that too because I'm constantly dragging them to shows and things and they could just commiserate with the other kids. That's perfect. I love it. <laughs> well, it's a plan. It's a date. We got stuff to do. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah Griffin, I am so grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to come and just chop it up with me here today. It is such an honor to know you. And I'm just so grateful that you and Trisha are, are in the world doing the work that you're doing. Uh, some might even say God's work. I know I would say God's work. I know the artists you're serving would say God's work. It is such a joy to Thank be you in your so orbit. Much. And, you know, please come back anytime. Doors open. I absolutely will. Thank you so much. We appreciate you using your platform to do this work. It's all good here. Anytime you ask me, I'm there. Awesome. Well, before we go, and of course, all this stuff will be in the show notes, but before we go, tell our listeners where they can find you and Tricia online at Unrepped. We're at unrepped.com, U-N-R-E-P-D.com. That's easy, people. U-N-R-E-P-D.com. You heard it here. That's our Instagram too. Yeah, I love that. it. I love it. Sarah Griffin, you're the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcasts and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.